Word here this morning. Uh, before I actually turn to the reading of God's Word, as many of you may know, our ministry theme for this current year is Restored Healing and Wholeness in Christ. And from the pulpit, we've been looking at various a series throughout the Bible that try and encapsulate and reflect that theme, healing and wholeness in Christ. And so if you were here with us this past year, you remember a few months ago we went through a series in the book of Nehemiah and we saw how God works within the community of his people to restore them as a community back to himself. Uh, last week we wrapped, up, we wrapped up and Pastor Will actually finished for us a series on the book of Revelation and we saw how Jesus is a returning king who promises to come one day and restore ourselves and restore all things to himself. And here this morning, we're actually beginning a short three-week series on the book of Philemon. And one of the main reasons we want to study this somewhat lesser-known uh, book of the Bible in the New Testament, Philemon, is because at the end of the day, at its core, the book of Philemon, it's a picture of how the gospel works within real life. In other words, it's a picture of how the gospel is actually able to work and mend and transform any on all relationships that we have in life, whether it's a relationship between husband and wife, parents and children, friendships, even people within the church. And as we'll see in the book, even the relationship between a slave and a master. And so, friends, with that said, if I can kindly ask you to please open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to the book of Philemon. Our passage today comes from Philemon chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And if you don't have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and follow along on the screen in front of you. But if I could kindly ask everyone to please stand for the reading of God's Word as an act of reverence and worship towards Him. And I'll read this for us. This is God's Word, Philemon chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, if you've never read the book of Philemon before, my guess is some of you may have not, which is fine. What you'll notice as we go through this series, it's only a short three-week series, but what you'll notice as we go through this book is that Philemon is unlike any of all of Paul's writings in the New Testament because First of all, it's really short, as you noticed. It's only 25 verses, and so the book itself is one of Paul's shortest writings in the New Testament. But secondly, the letter of Philemon is so unique because it's not a theological treatise or handbook like the book of Romans. It's not like Paul's other epistles where he talks about a lot of doctrines and a lot of commands and how we're supposed to live as Christians. But at the end of the day, what makes the book of Philemon so unique in the New Testament is that it's a story. It's not just a letter, but it's a story that's given to us. And it's a story of how the gospel can transform relationships in our lives. And just like, friends, any good story, whether you're reading a book or you're watching a movie, before you can actually get into the real meat of the story and know what it's about, you can't just open up a book in the middle and start reading, and you can't just turn a movie on in the 30-minute mark and start watching, but you first need to figure out who the characters are, what the plot is, and what's going on if you want to understand the full message of the story. And so before we actually get into the main part of our message here this morning, let me just fill in a little bit of background to Philemon and what this story is about. Now, first of all, in the book of Philemon, essentially what you have is you have three main characters. First, you have Philemon. He's the person that this letter is written to. And what we know about Philemon is that he was a leader in one of the house churches in the city of Colossae. He was a really well-off man. He was well-off financially. He had a lot of resources. 
And in fact, one of the things that we know about him uh, from this letter is that we know that Philemon actually owned a lot of slaves. And we also know that he eventually became a Christian through the ministry of Paul and through Paul's preaching. Now, I know right off the bat, just as a side note, as I said that, many of you may be thinking, how is this possible? How could a Christian in the first century own slaves? Isn't that anti-gospel? Isn't that anti-Christian? Isn't that antithetical to everything that Jesus stood for? And friends, without getting too lost in the weeds, let me just offer just a few hopefully clarifying thoughts for us as we approach this book. Without getting, again, too lost in the weeds, you know, when you and I hear that word slavery, when we just hear that word slavery, a lot of times we immediately think of slavery in our more recent colonial context within this country. Slavery where people were kidnapped from their homes, they were stolen from their families, all based on their race or the color of their skin, and they were put into lifelong slavery or lifelong servitude. And friends, just to clarify, slavery in the first century in Greco-Roman society was actually much different than slavery as you and I think of it today. Because first of all, slavery back then in the first century, it was entirely economy-driven. It was not race-driven. In other words, most people entered into slavery because they had debts that they could not pay off. They had no other means of paying off their debt. And so what they they did was they would enter into slavery, this relationship with the master where they'd eventually be able to pay off their debts. The second thing about first century slavery is that Slavery was oftentimes voluntary for people back then, meaning it wasn't always forced, and it wasn't based on just stealing or kidnapping people from their families. But most slaves back then in the first century actually voluntarily entered into it. They chose to go into slavery. And the third thing that we know about first century slavery is that it wasn't permanent, meaning that eventually over time, slaves in the first century, they could actually earn enough money, and they could actually purchase their freedom or what they call self-emancipation. They could free themselves, And if you look at church history or history of the first century, a lot of historians will actually tell you that slaves in the first century, many of them were very wealthy and they're actually very educated. And so as we just think about this, slavery in the first century, friends, it was actually much more similar to what you and I know today, or if you took world history if you're in middle school, as something more similar to indentured servanthood or indentured servitude, where someone enters into this contractual agreement and over time they're eventually able to pay off their debt and earn their freedom. It was much different than slavery as you and I think of it today. And so hopefully just a few clarifying thoughts as we think of this. But that's the first character that we're introduced to in this story. We're introduced to Philemon, who's a slave owner. He owned servants, and he was a leader in the church of Colossae. He became a Christian through the ministry of Paul. That's our first character. That leads us to our second character in this story, Onesimus. Now, who Onesimus is was he was one of Philemon's slaves. He was a person that served Philemon. He worked in his household. And what we know about Onesimus is that just like Philemon, later on in his life, he actually became a believer too through the ministry of Paul. And that leads us thirdly and lastly to the final character, Paul himself. Paul in this story, he's the one writing the letter, and he's the person who brought both of these other characters into the church, into the Christian faith. He brought Philemon and Onesimus both to Jesus Christ. That's Paul. And so, friends, those are the three main characters that we're going to look at here in this story for the next three weeks. But with that said, what exactly is the plot of this story? What's going on? Why did Paul write this letter in the first place? Well, the plot is essentially this. Onesimus, one day, he decides to run away from his master, Philemon. He runs away, and we're not exactly told why he runs away, but what we are told is that Onesimus probably either stole something from his master, Philemon, or he did something to wrong him. And so he runs away. He becomes a fugitive. And then one day, either by a miracle or God's providence, While Onesimus is running away and traveling in Rome, he runs into the Apostle Paul, and he's actually converted into Christianity. He becomes a Christian after he runs away. What happens is he spends time serving Paul, helping with ministry, 
And eventually one day, Paul realizes, I need to send this guy back. I have to send Onesimus back to Philemon in order that the two of them can reconcile with one another because they're both believers in Jesus. And so as Onesimus is about to travel back to the city of Colossae, back to Philemon, who's probably irate and angry, and who doesn't even know that Onesimus is a Christian now too, what Paul does is he writes this letter, he gives it to Onesimus in order to facilitate reconciliation between the two as Onesimus returns back to Philemon's household. And friends, that's the context in which we enter here today into the book of Philemon. It's a letter about relationships. It's a letter about reconciliation, one of the hardest reconciliations that could be possible in this life. So friends, today, as we look at just the introduction to this letter, we'll learn three things here today about relationships and about reconciliation. And the way that we'll do that is by looking at three aspects of Paul's opening verses to this letter. The first thing that we'll look at is first the sender of this letter. And in that, we'll see our need for humility in our relationships. The second thing we'll look at is the recipient of the letter. And in that, we'll see our need for community, our need for relationships in our lives. The third thing we'll look at is the content of Paul's introduction. And in that, we'll hopefully be able to see the joy and the blessing of reconciliation in our relationships. And so again, three things that we'll look at here today. First, we'll look at the center of this letter, and we'll see our need for humility. Secondly, we'll look at the recipient of the letter, see our need for community. And lastly, we'll look at the content and we'll see the blessing of reconciliation. But let's begin with the first point here. Now, if you read verse 1 again with me, Paul opens this letter by introducing himself as the sender, and he says in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Now, for those of you who, if you're familiar with the Bible, you've read a lot of the New Testament epistles, you probably think that there's nothing important or that spectacular about Paul's greeting here. It sounds pretty generic sounds pretty normal, but one thing that most commentators will point out is that this is actually the only instance in the New Testament where in the beginning of Paul's letter, he addresses himself, he introduces himself not as a servant, not as an apostle, but he calls himself a prisoner, a prisoner for Jesus. And for example, if you read the opening to the letter of Colossians, a book that's related to the Philemon, in Colossians chapter 1 verses 1, this is how Paul introduces himself in the beginning of Colossians. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Or as another example, if you look at the opening of the book of 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul opens with this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, friends, what's really interesting is Paul also wrote both of those letters, Colossians and 1 Timothy. He also wrote both of those letters while he was sitting in prison, while he was in jail. But the interesting thing is he opens both of those letters by introducing himself as an apostle, he doesn't even mention that he's a prisoner. And so, friends, the question is, why in this letter specifically does Paul address himself not as an apostle of Jesus, but as a prisoner? Well, friends, there's a really good reason why. As we just said, this letter, this book, it's essentially a book about reconciliation where Paul is playing a mediator between Philemon and between Onesimus. And friends, if you just think about it, Paul could have easily just pulled out his apostle card. He could have pulled rank on Philemon and commanded Philemon and said, look, Philemon, I'm an apostle. In fact, I'm the apostle that brought you into the faith, that brought you into the church. I'm right. You need to listen to me. I understand and I know the gospel and its applications way more than you do, so you have to listen to me. Receive Onesimus back. That's what you need to do. Listen to me. Paul could have easily done that and the letter would be over. This, This sermon would be over. And yet, friends, he doesn't do that. And instead of pushing the reconciliation forward 
through his status as an apostle or by forcing it through principle, what Paul does is he leads a reconciliation out of humility. Instead, what he says to Philemon is, look, Philemon, I'm in no position to force you or curse you to do anything. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I'm in jail. But I'm appealing to you as a brother and as a beloved fellow worker for Jesus. Paul begins and he leads this massive reconciliation, not out of his status, but he does it out of humility. And brothers and sisters, by implication, one of the things that this opening verse teaches us about our own relationships and our own reconciliation in life is that if you want to have reconciliation with people in your life, no matter what's happened between you, it needs to begin with humility. It requires and it starts with humility. Now, friends, if you were asked the question, what do you think is the biggest obstacle in your life when you're reconciling with someone, either when you've wronged them or they've wronged you, what do you think is the biggest obstacle? How would you answer that question? Now, would you say that it's anger, the anger that you just feel towards that person because they've wronged you so much? Maybe you would say it's just this person always just thinks so illogically and therefore I can't reconcile because they just don't think rightly or logically. Maybe it's just the pure frustration that you feel, the hurt that you feel that they've wronged you or sinned against you. And friends, those are all legitimate reasons why reconciliation is so difficult in our lives. But friends, do you know the way the Bible answers that question? What's the biggest obstacle to reconciliation in our lives? What the Bible says is it's actually not anger. It's not your pent-up emotions or frustration, but it's actually your pride, the pride in your heart. Ed Welch, a CCF counselor, he once wrote an article a couple years ago entitled The Absurdity of Pride. And in this article, essentially what he does is he fleshes out how pride, it destroys and dismantles reconciliation in our lives. And he does this by giving a couple of real-life examples. And first he says, imagine that a child hits his younger brother in the face. He hits his younger brother in the face. Now, his wrongdoing is obvious, and his mom tells him, son, you need to, you have to ask for forgiveness. And yet the words just simply won't come out of his mouth. His pride will accept any other discipline. Spanking, grounding, timeout, no iPad, no, no Minecraft for a couple days. Any other discipline than having to say those words, will you forgive me? They're just four words, yet he can't say them because his pride hates the idea. His pride has this irrational fear of being humbled and lowed. Or as another example, you know, imagine a boyfriend or girlfriend, husband and wife, uh, they get into an argument about who's right, or at least in the scenario, who's more right. You can tell both of them are getting so tired of arguing and just bickering and fighting, but each one wants the last word. No one wants to lose the argument. Each one wants to prove the other person wrong, prove that they were right. And so what happens is they keep arguing and arguing and arguing until eventually they don't even remember what they're arguing about in the first place. And friends, in the article, Ed Welch, he goes on to say that the reason that incidences like these happen so frequently in our lives, the reason that reconciliation is often so difficult for us as human beings is because at the end of the day, we as humans, we are dependent and we're lowly, humble creatures by nature. We're dependent upon God for everything. We're dependent upon grace. And we've done nothing in ourselves, accomplished nothing in ourselves to justify our enthronement or our exaltation over other people. And yet he says what happens in our hearts is that when we're in conflict and when we're trying to reconcile, at the end of the day, we still believe that we've earned the right to sit on our own thrones and to look down on other people when they've done wrong to us, or even when we've done wrong to them. And brothers and sisters, Many of us here today, we have broken relationships in our lives, don't we? With our parents, our siblings, with our spouses, our kids, friends, people, maybe even within this church. 
Friends, if you want to begin to experience at least some level of transformation and healing and reconciliation in those relationships, it's not going to start with you retelling or rehashing the story or the narrative in a way that favors your side. It's not going to start with you finding ways to dismantle the other person's argument or experiences, proving that you were in the right. Friends, it's going to start with, first and foremost, humility. Humbling yourself, taking yourself off your own throne in order that the reconciliation can even take place. Friends, before we move on to our second point, we know that this is true. We know that reconciliation is the path that leads, that humility is the path that leads to reconciliation because not only does Paul open this letter with humility, but friends, that's the exact path that Jesus himself took in order to reconcile us. As Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. By being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, if you want to, again, begin to experience reconciliation in your life, it needs to start by having the mind of Christ, putting on the mind of Christ and putting on humility. This brings us to our second point. Let's look at the recipient of this letter, And in this, hopefully, we'll be able to see the need for relationships and community in our lives. Now, if you read verses 1 through 3 again with me, Paul writes in verses 1 through 3, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, what's really interesting is Even though this letter is clearly meant for Philemon, it's meant for his eyes because it's about his personal relationship, his personal reconciliation with Onesimus. What's interesting is Paul doesn't just address this letter to Philemon alone, but he actually addresses it to multiple recipients. And in verse 2, he addresses it to Aphia, who is probably Philemon's wife, to Archippus, who is probably their son. And last but not least in verse 2, he addresses it to the church in Philemon's house. Which, by the way, the implication of that is Paul expected, and he wanted this letter to actually be read in front of the entire church as Philemon's church gathered for worship. Now, friends, if you just think about it, if Paul's ultimate aim in writing this letter is to bring about reconciliation between two people, just two people, Philemon and Onesimus, why didn't he just address the letter personally to Philemon? Why include his family? Why include the entire church? You know, for many of us, that sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? Having all your personal baggage and relational messiness read publicly and addressed in front of the entire church. Friends, the reason that Paul does this is because at the end of the day, both he and Philemon recognized and they knew that the Christian life, friends, it's meant to be a shared life. It's meant to be a communal life. That what impacted and affected Philemon's personal and his spiritual life, it also affected to a degree the rest of the church and the rest of the body. Perhaps the best summary of this principle is what Paul himself wrote in the letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12.26, In talking about the church's interconnectedness and its unity, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't think that the fact that Paul addressed this very personal letter to Philemon's family and to the rest of the church is a prescriptive model for the church today, meaning that all of our sins need to be read and addressed publicly in front of the entire church. But friends, at the very least, I do think it speaks into and even against our culture here today. You know, it's no secret that our culture here today 
here in the West and in America, even in Southern California especially, it's entirely built on independence. It's built on autonomy and what social commentators like to call radical individualism. In other words, the point of life is life is about you. Everything revolves around your preferences, your needs, and your desires. And what radical individualism believes and teaches is, that, is this idea that in life, I should be able to do what I want, when I want to do it, with who I want to do it with, and if I want to do it. And friends, that's something that exists not only in the world out there around us, but even in the church. Because so often, I think in the church, you know, we as Christians, we have this tendency to individualize and to privatize our faith. And we think of faith as something that's only about us. It's my relationship with God, how it affects my life. We think about church in such individualistic terms. I need to be being fed. I need to be poured into and loved and cared for. It's about me, my experience. And friends, that's something that we see in our lives where we take this radical individualism of our culture and we bring it into the way that we live within the church and we think, as a Christian in the church, I need to be able to do what I want, when I want to do it, with who I want to do it with, whoever I choose, and only if I feel like doing it. But friends, you see, the problem is when we do this so often, when we individualize and privatize our faith so much, we make it all about me and my preference and my growth and just me and Jesus with no emphasis or need for other people or community or sacrifice or vulnerability, what happens is, ironically, what you're doing is you're actually stunting your very own ability to grow as a Christian. Now, Albert Shim, a PCA elder who, he actually wrote our church's discipleship curriculum. In one of the chapters, he actually traces this concept and this idea of our culture's overemphasis on the individual and the private personal dimensions of our faith. And he does this by looking at different doctrines. And he says, for example... We as Christians know that adoption, Christian adoption is one of the, the greatest and most joyous privileges that we're given as believers in Jesus. But the problem, he says, is most of us only think about our adoption in personal and private individual terms. In other words, most of us think adoption, all it means is that God is now my father. He's my heavenly father, which is true. But friends, another reality of adoption means that not only in adoption do you have a new father, but by implication it means you have a new family. In other words, you have brothers and sisters that you can pray and weep and rejoice with. You have a community and a family that you're called to love and to serve and be connected with and to encourage and serve and bless. That's all part of adoption. And as another example, he says, think about your union with Christ. Now, union with Christ not only means that you are engrafted by faith into Jesus, but friends, by implication, union with Christ also means that you're united to the other people around you to the people in this room. That's how closely related and connected that you are to them. Now, to use the biblical language, it means we're all branches of the same vine. We're all body parts of the same body, members of the same body, radically interdependent and incomplete without the other people around us. And friends, that's why in some sense, according to the Bible, there's no such thing as a purely individual or privatized or personal faith. And of course, in Christianity, there are personal dimensions there's personal aspects to your faith, of course. We all need our own personal faith in Jesus. But friends, it means that at the end of the day, our faith itself is meant to be communal. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be lived out within the context, friends, of a community and people around you. And friends, that's why here at our church, at New Life, one of our core values, I know the, mo the one we talk about the most is Reformed in Theology. But that's why we're not a church that's only Reformed in Theology, meaning that we don't just want to focus on sound doctrine and teaching but friends, one of our other core values is to counsel in community. Because one of our goals and the vision of our church is that at the end of the day, we don't strive as a church for people who just come on Sundays, 
get sound doctrine and teaching and then just go and internalize it on your own during the week. You just pray about it on your own and hope that you grow as a Christian. Friends, one of our goals is that we'd have people who would live out that doctrine, speak it into one another's lives within the context of a community. That's one of our core values. Because, friends, too often I think many of us as Christians, we keep and we hide our true burdens, our sins and our true struggles from other people, whether it's because of shame or guilt or embarrassment or discomfort. But, friends, what this passage reminds us of is that what was affecting Philemon's life personally, as personal as it may have been, it affected the body because he was a part of the body. And friends, by implication, what that means is what is affecting and happening in your life right now, happening in your heart, in your circumstances. Friends, it affects the people around you. It affects the body because you are part of the body. So friends, the challenge and the encouragement for us today is friends, share your life with the church. Share it with the people around you. Join a community group or a discipleship group, a small group if you haven't done so already. Invest in a ministry or find people in your life around you that you can actually share not just your time or your hobbies or fun things with or fellowship, but share your burdens and your struggles in your actual life with because, friends, at the end of the day, that's how your faith is meant to and that's how it's actually going to grow when it's lived within the context of a community. That's what we see here in this passage. And this brings us thirdly and briefly to our last point. Now, we looked at the sender of this letter and we looked at the recipient or the recipients of the letter. Now let's look at the content of what Paul writes in this introduction. And in this, I hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to see one of the best, the blessings and joys of reconciliation in our own lives as Christians. But friends, would you read with me again verses 4 through 7, the end of this introduction. Paul says in verses 4 through 7, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. My friends, what Paul is doing in verses 4 through 7, what he's doing in here is you can kind of see how he's, he's setting the stage to make this big ask and this big request to Onesimus, excuse me, to Philemon in verses 8 through 20, this big request to receive Onesimus back as a brother, to, love, to show him love, grace, and generosity. Paul's trying to set that up. And the way that Paul actually sets up this big request is in verse 5 by actually thanking God for all the ways in which Philemon has, al- has already shown love, grace, and generosity to his church, the church in his house. In other words, friends, in verse 5, Paul basically is saying to Philemon, Philemon, I've heard of all the ways that you've been so gracious and loving and generous to the people in your church. And his implication is, now I'm about to ask you to do something really tough. I'm going to ask you, I'm about to ask you to do the exact same thing for this slave, this servant that's run away from you, Onesimus. That's what Paul does in verse 5. But see, then in verse 6, Paul says something actually really interesting. If you read verse 6 again with me, Paul says there in verse 6, And Philemon, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, friends, just as a disclaimer, this verse is, I spent so much time this past week studying this verse, trying to understand it, because many commentators will say it's the most confusing and hard-to-interpret verse in this, in this entire book. And a lot of times, people see this verse, and they take it as an encouragement to evangelize, because they think it means that you know, when you share your faith, when Paul says the sharing of your faith, they think it means when you evangelize that you yourself are blessed and you grow as a Christian. 
And friends, that's totally and entirely true. You do grow every time you share the gospel and you evangelize, but that's not actually Paul's point. Now, if you look at verse 6 carefully in the context, when Paul talks about Philemon sharing his faith in verse 6, he's not talking so much about sharing the gospel message to a non-believer. But what he's talking about is extending gospel forgiveness to a brother. In other words, friends, in verse 6, Paul is saying that as Philemon shares in the faith with Onesimus, as Philemon forgives him and accepts him and reconciles with him, Paul is saying as he does that, Philemon will have a more full understanding of what God has done for him and Jesus. That he'll have a more fuller knowledge, as Paul says, of every good thing that he himself has been given in Christ. Friends, that's Paul's point, and that's the blessing of reconciliation in our lives as believers, just like for Philemon. Just as kind of a a silly example, some of you may know that about a year ago, almost a year and a half ago now, some of the members of our staff decided to uh, take up skateboarding as a hobby during the uh, pandemic, uh, spearheaded by our fearless leader, Pastor Will. (laughs) But we began skateboarding about a year and a half ago, and I'll be really honest with you here today. Before I actually started skateboarding, and I've seen people skateboard all throughout my life. Before I actually skateboarded myself, I just saw people like skating either on YouTube or just on the street and doing tricks or going down a ramp. It definitely looked like it required you know, a lot of skill and a lot of practice. But if I'm honest, it honestly didn't look that difficult or that hard or that scary. And I would think to myself as I saw people skating, you know, I bet if I practice you know, a little bit, put some hours into it, I'm pretty sure I could do that, do a kickflip or drop down into a ramp. But friends, now that I've skated for about a year and a half, I can honestly say before you that I have a far deeper appreciation for skateboarders. Whenever I see kids on the street or whenever I watch clips on Instagram or YouTube, not only because I know now how bad I am at it, but actually more importantly because I now have a far deeper understanding of just how much skill, how much practice, and just tenacity and courage that it takes. And friends, that's just a silly example of a way to say that in the same way. What Paul is saying here is that one of the beauties and blessings of reconciliation in our human relationships, whether it's with people in the church or your family or friends, one of the blessings, friends, is that every time that you and I have the opportunity to reconcile with someone, to restore a relationship that's broken or that's been hurt or fractured, to forgive someone or to be forgiven by someone, every time we're given that opportunity, friends, we're given just a fuller knowledge and a a deeper understanding of, friends, just how much it took God to forgive and to reconcile us. Friends, that in moments when you feel like it's impossible to forgive or to love that person who has wronged you or has sinned against you so much or so frequently, friends, you're reminded of the forgiveness that God has extended to you in Christ, to an undeserving sinner like you, and sending his son Jesus to die for you. Friends, in times when it feels like a relationship in your life is just too far gone, or it's too fractured or estranged for any hope of reconciliation, friends, that you're reminded of the infinite chasm that Jesus himself took from heaven to earth in order to bring you to God. So friends, as we come to a close, there are many of us here today, and some of us, friends, who may need to be forgiven here today. We need forgiveness in our lives, forgiveness from people that we've hurt or people that we've wronged. Now, others of us, we may need to be the ones who need to do the forgiving, But friends, that I pray that just as Paul prayed for Philemon here, that as we pursue repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation in our relationships, as difficult and as messy and as painful as it may be, friends, that as we do so, as Paul prays, that friends, we grow in our understanding 
and our knowledge and our appreciation of every good thing that we ourselves have received in Christ Jesus. Friends, may our relationships here today as a church, may they be filled with grace and forgiveness. Friends, just as God has shown grace and forgiveness to us in his son Jesus. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, this morning for your grace. We thank you for all the ways in which, Lord, as we look at our own lives, the ways in which we have ran away and sinned against you, Lord, all the ways in which we've broken your heart. And, your Lord, we're so grateful for the way that you yourself has re- have reconciled us to you and yourself through your son Jesus who came to us not out of anger but, Lord, in humility. We thank you for the church that you've given us around us, for this community of saints that you've called us to grow together uh, with and together with, Lord. And we just pray that, Lord, as a church, you'd remind us of all the ways in which you're calling us, even now, to live restored and healed and reconciled relationship with, with the people around us, whether it's people in this church, with people who are in our coworkers at work, friends at church, or even in our families and our relationships. And Lord, so I pray that your grace would continue to work in our lives to bring about the healing and the transformation that Lord, we have received in your son Jesus, that we'd be able to experience that same healing and wholeness in the relationships around us. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace to us again here this morning. We love you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.